Hey, have you heard the Virginia Lottery has a new Willy Wonka Golden Ticket Scratcher that has a top prize of $100,000? Tell that to my automated Golden Ticket Scratcher apparatus. You simply put the ticket in here, and the machine scratches it for you. And while we wait, we can play the Willy Wonka Golden Ticket online game with a top prize of $1 million. Just visit VALottery.com or use the lottery app. That's one impressive scratcher apparatus. Use it whenever. What's mine is yours. But hands off the scratcher. That Willy Wonka Golden Ticket is all mine. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hello, I am H.R. Giger here to invite you to an hour of funniness and laughter and history and worms. The worms, <laughs> they crawl within me. Now, H.R. Geiger, uh, thank you for joining us today on Richard Richardson's Rich, Rich Chat. Uh, Richard Chat. It is a, a play. You know, your name is Five Dicks. Now, my name. So that that was is my- the minimum requirement for all of my paintings. Now, Geiger, we have. Uh, you have that unique ability. Some see names or words in colors. You see names and words in dicks. Um, <laughs> where did this come from? How do you think you were able to establish this uh, unique human ability that not many have? Uh, many children talk about having parents, but I only had a puddle. I emerged from it and returned to it every day after school. The children, the cruel children, would beat me, call me Puddle Boy, and 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 whack at my at my genitals. Now I'm going to say a series of words. You tell me how many dicks consist of each word, okay? I'm a trained industrial designer in my hometown of Zurich, Switzerland. Okay, thank you for that fact, uh, Mr. Geiger. Okay, so first word. Books. I imagine the testicle throbbing on the end of a woman's bosom. Several dicks emanate. The dicks are also fingers. Okay, how about roller coaster? Roller coaster. The mother and the child share a dark embrace while setting a cage of human phallus. And how many dicks is that? 27. <laughs> okay, and for the final word, um, trapper keeper. That's, again, that's Trapper Keeper. The bones form into a cacophon, and only the blackest of ink can penetrate. The darkness, this mother, why? Why? I am also trained in jazz piano. Mm, very interesting. Did Thank- you know that? Yes. No, actually, I would entertain, no, I did not know that. I would entertain my coworkers that's, that with is, jazz piano. That is interesting. Jazz piano, just free-form jazz piano. Well, thank you so How much. How do I exist? <laughs> How am I a real person? Thank you so much for joining Rich Richardson's Rich Rich Chat. Um, and now it's time for an episode of Wizard and the Bruiser! 
Sing along, everybody. You know the words. You know the words. You can make it. You can do it. Wizard and the bruiser do it. Do the whiz brew. And the brew is. If you want some, then you do it. Um, I need to stop singing our, our uh, well-known intro song to introduce the show. Jake. I am the wizard, Jake Young. And I am the bruiser, Holden McNeely. And today we are, of course, speaking about the world-renowned, legendary sci-fi horror film, Ridley's God's Alien. The 1979 classic that redefined big pictures and redefined science fiction. Starring such big hitter names as Tom Skerritt, Veronica Cartwright, Harry Dean, Stanton, John Hurt, Ian Holm, and of course, Yafit Koto. Oh, we're going to talk about Yafit. Oh, shit. Talking, yeah, you know, we were going to name this episode Yafit Chat, (laughs) but we decided we should cover actually just the whole film, right? Because that would make more sense. People know what that is, right? The film Alien is the tale of a of a of a plucky young grease grease jockey in the well of a spaceship and his good friend Brett who just want their shares. <laughs> when are they going to get their shares? It's a tale of unions and capitalism and chest babies. <laughs> um. So where do we where do we even right. Jake? Okay. All right. So there's a few key figures running around here, and uh, the, the the let's let's. This go is th- a melting pot of a creative. What work. made Alien so fucking fantastic? Yes. I watched it for the first time this week. Like Alien is one of those movies that like I avoided as a kid because it was literally too scary, and I just had a tendency of self poopage. Wait. What? I didn't watch The Thing till I was like 27. I didn't watch The Exorcist till I was like 30. It was your idea to do this episode. I needed an excuse to finally man up and look at the pulsating KY jelly-covered black dick monster. I think that of the mini horror, I was not a horror kid, Marcus. Marcus, by the way, welcome welcome to the show. I wanted to just say Thank your you. name. Super a- producer slash horror kid. Horror enthusiast. <laughs> so I know we're going we're gonna to be hearing from Marcus this episode. I was not a horror kid when I was young. I got into horror when I was in college. I think I did get to, and, and you know, being friends with a certain man you may know from Roundtable the Gentleman or Brighter Side, Ed Larson, you know, thrust upon many films upon me. He would feed me mescaline and show me House of a Thousand Corpses. I'm serious. I believe you a million percent. I could not be into horror back when I was in college. Were you watching this movie when you were a youngin? I'm actually right there with Jake. Aliens, Whoa. just the Mad Magazine parody of Alien, just the visual of it gave me the worst nightmares of my childhood. Just That's the power of fucking H.R. Giger. Exactly. Yeah. Just yes. the visual alone. So I didn't watch... I don't think I watched Alien or Aliens until I was in high school, I think. Actually, you were correct, uh, or, or there, you, you were spawning a memory of mine I do forget about. My my buddy, Pat Daly, uh, de- definitely going to name drop him. He's the one who got me uh, into cool kid music like Nirvana when I was in fifth grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was really into it, just H.R. Geiger stuff. He was like really into Marilyn Manson and like Tool and stuff like that, and he got turned on to the artwork of H.R. Geiger. And I remember it wasn't a bad 
Best Buy. It was like a media. I forget. It was like, remember there were a bunch of Best Buy clones? I forget what it was called. Anyway, we were at this place called like Media Place or some shit like that. And we went and they had books though. And they had an H.R. Geiger book. And we opened it up and he was like, check this shit out. And I saw like three different uh, Geiger illustrations. And I li- I was like, I can't even look at this. This is terrible. Like b- b- images on a page. I was like, I, it gave me nightmares. Like I was so terrified. Alien does fit into this weird uh, trend that happened in the 80s and 90s where like, the core movie was rated R, but there still had some, like, merchandising action figure, like, the RoboCop effect. Mm-hmm. Like, so you could be aware of, like, the Xenomorph design and the Aliens universe without actually having to sit and watch the original movie. That was, like, inappropriate for a kid. But yep. the core weird energy that made Alien possible and made it a classic was that inside was the beating heart of just a dumb nerd movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it was financed... So, like, I'm going to say the musculature of big Hollywood, like classic old-time Hollywood producers. But they were able to convince big Hollywood to allow a fucking crazy, dark, freaky-ass artist like Geiger to come in there and design the monster. I want to be in that room when they were like, when, like, the the 20th Century Fox people were looking at Geiger illustrations, and they were like, but seriously, (laughs) seriously, it's going to work. It's going to work. They're just like, this is straight up just dicks and pussies on, like, getting eaten by, like, a machine woman. Yeah, so... You, I just okay. You showed me pictures of the monster, and it just looks like uh, interracial gangbang, but a jet engine. What is happening? <laughs> um, and but it was all it was all wardrobe. It was all furnished by like this this killer crew of like art house kind of lofty filmmakers. Mm-hmm. So all three energies kind of like united to make something special. I'm, I'm reminded of like The Simpsons, where it was a mixture of like rude attitude and and like old time feel good like classic television it's all about uniting the strengths of these disparate parts of filmmaking into this one incredible product and all thanks to star wars right all thanks to star wars uh, like ridley scott didn't become interested in making a movie like this until star wars 20th century fox literally only had one s- script that <laughs> featured a spaceship and it was called alien and it was it like, might have even still been called star beast star <laughs> Um, they were like, hey, maybe we should stop taking acid for one second, right. so, uh, O'Bannon, uh, oh, and yeah. call this alien. So let's get to O'Bannon, <laughs> and uh, the, let's go to All the nerd it. heart. The oh, nerd man. heart of it. And I love the little dash of Jordorowski in there. There's Jordorowski. Oh, there's, I'm going to, uh, John Carpenter? Yes, of uh, course. So. Dan, okay, Dan we'll back it all the way up though. Is a uh, was like a real honest to god nerd in all of the behind the scenes documentaries I watched. He was legit wearing a bow tie and suspenders and he legit talked like this. And he was uh he was a filmmaker, he was a cartoonist, an illustrator, he was a nerd. He was an honest to god nerd that went to the uh University of Southern California film program and mm-hmm. there he met and collaborated with none other than super 80s mega man John Carpenter on a movie called Dark Star. Now, Marcus, did you watch Dark Star? It I, has this weird cult status. I never saw it. It's on the list, though. Yeah. Um, so Dark Star was a, it, for all intents and purposes, a student film that got way out of control, but it actually had just enough polish on it that it was released nationwide to theaters. Uh, the whole the whole crux of, uh, of Dark Star is that uh, it has this very like existentialist dark sense of humor and these very interesting low budget effects shot that like shouldn't be possible by a student crew, but they pulled off 
like really well at the time, especially in like kind of this proto Star Wars era where good sci-fi effects were few and far between. Uh, unfortunately, it was roundly criticized by uh, critics as a flop. Uh, O'Bannon talks about going to screenings with John Carpenter and like the crushing feeling of uh, not crushing the the feeling of bombing, watching as all these uh, hilarious jokes they wrote for this movie just fell flat on their ass. Mm. Um, and famously, you can actually look up clips of this. The alien creature in Dark Star, uh, they had so much trouble with the with the uh, with the puppets and the and the uh, animatronics that they eventually just had to settle with a beach ball painted with polka dots and just with like claws on the ground. <laughs> like that's that's you know they had to finish and, and, and that's what got uh, uh, O'Bannon yearning mm-hmm. for an alien creature that actually looked like a real deal alien creature. And I think right. that that impulse, that need, desire within yeah. him has so much to do with where we got to with Alien because that's at least how I feel about Alien. I think mm-hmm. it it does a better job than in, on pretty much any other sci-fi film of like man I feel like like the the uh, the face monster mm-hmm. uh, uh especially like it feels like a real the face hugger face hugger yes it feels like a real ass thing that doesn't exist you know mm-hmm. it really it, it just it just you get it in your the nuts of you That's- you're like that thing is fucking going to jump out of a birthday cake and fucking destroy <laughs> me it is going to stick its ovipositor down my throat with its pumping lungs. It's still, I mean, how did you feel seeing that for the first time? Because I, I okay, so I, yeah, I recently watched it. Um, uh, no, no, not too recently. It was a few years ago on Valentine's Day. I forced Lexi to watch it with me. I don't know how or why that happened. My memory has been erased from that time period. But I will say, every single time I watch it, I get a visceral disgust reaction to that face hugger when you see its little lung pipes pumping mm-hmm. air and stuff i mean it, it it is it is just still as effective as it ever was um part of the another one of the things that alien did incredibly well uh especially in that face hugger in all the practical effects is um a lot of times like you know in a cheesy horror movie or in like a low budget b movie horror movie they're just like dumping pig's blood on stuff and like it's kind of like gross and you know it's viscera but like this was a high budget movie shot impeccably well. Each like you know, each composition and all the lighting is perfect, but it's still like people covered in legit viscera. So like the face hugger, uh, when it you know when it drops off of uh, John Hurt's face and they're dissecting it, uh, Ridley Scott describes taking a bucket that he got from a local fishmonger in England and like individually placing like oysters and fish livers and guts in the perfect arrangement of like sensible yet terrifying alien guts. Geiger used dried up bones for the interior. He does. He created those interiors of the alien spaceship. They're dried bones. Oh shit. Yeah. There's a legit human skull in the original Xenomorph yes, helmet. Yes. Actual human skull. <laughs> I, that was like one of my favorite things I, I learned. That's one this of those week. We- yeah. It's one of the weird things is, like, uh, depending on what stage of the design process, the xenomorph either has, like, a visible skull through the kind of carapace or not. I think it looks better with no eyes because it's, like, uh, they describe it as just – it could be, like, looking anywhere. It's yeah. just it's just claws and intent and a direction. <sighs> it still works. It still uh, works. So, anyway, so, so O'Bannon ends up getting together with another sci-fi icon, icon Ronald Shusett, who, of course, we would know to have, uh, will eventually write the script for Total Recall. Uh, weird thing about Ronald Shusett, 
is uh, in all of the interviews with him, he keeps insisting on calling it Total Recall. <laughs> and it was infuriating. Total Recall. Because I... uh, Alien and, and Total Recall were his two big hits. He definitely thinks fondly of those days. And uh, it just over and over again, like, and of course, uh, I had the rights to Phil Dick's Total Recall. <laughs> Do you think he corrects uh, women on blind dates? I... When they say, it, say, you made Total Recall? Um, Actually, it was Total Recall. <laughs> Number one thing you need to know about Ronald Schussett. Two things. He goes on mad blind dates. <laughs> Three things you need to know about Ronald Schussett. He kind of looks like me. He wears a cabbie hat all the time. And he doesn't date. He fucks. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so they worked on a script called Memory, um, which had a group of astronauts waking, uh, awaking, awakening early on a voyage to do a signal on a nearby planet in which they investigate and have their spaceship break down. Um, and that was a about all they had at that point. Uh, O'Bannon is then called out called out to Paris on a gig. He works for six months. This is the big kind of pivotal. I mean, it just it's one of those right place, right time situations. He goes out there to work on Jordorowski's film adaptation of Dune. Now, if you're not legendary, if you're not familiar with Jordorowski, watch Holy Mountain right now. Stop everything. Watch Holy Mountain. Watch El Topo. He's, it's, you know, it's it's an acid trip. It's a it's a crazy. He's a he's a really wild psychedelic film director. Psychedelic is the right word. Murder yeah. Fist. If you're familiar with the sketch comedy group I'm a part of, Murder Fist heavily heavily influenced by Holy Mountain. Um, he was working on a film adaptation of Dune. It fell apart. Uh, there is a documentary about that, um, which actually I'm I have not fucking seen yet. I have not seen. It's one of those movies that like got a bunch of high and you're like, oh shit, and it's been out for over a year now, and you're like, oh fuck, I gotta get to that. It's also one of those movies where every time I try to find it on something, it's like not there, or it's like you can only buy it either way. Anyways. But um, this is, uh, Jodorowsky's Dune is one of the legendary greatest films never made. Yes. So while he's out there working on that thing that didn't happen, he was introduced to several O'Bannon. artists. O'Bannon. Yeah. He's introduced to Chris Foss, who is known for his sci-fi book covers. Mm-hmm. If you look at the cover or the kind of promo poster for Jodorowsky's Dune, you can see one of Foss's designs. He's introduced to Jean Mobius Gerard, who, if you do, I love this. I'm going to call these now our crossover. Moments mm-hmm. in our episodes. Uh, the crossover moment there, if you remember, he was introduced. Uh, he introduced illustrator Jeff Darrow to Frank Miller, um, and they ended up creating Hard Boiled together. So that's our weird little connection to our Frank Miller episode. And Mobius did was uh, uh, working on Alien for a little bit. Mm-hmm. He created the costume renderings, which served as a basis for the final spacesuits created by costume designer John Malo. But he was also introduced to artist H. R. Geiger. Uh, Hans Rudy Rudolph Geiger. Uh, there was, in uh, one of the documentaries I watched, there was this little anecdote where uh, where uh, O'Bannon was introduced to H.R. Geiger, and H.R. Uh, uh, Geiger kindly offers up a tin of opium to O'Bannon, and O'Bannon, being a dumb nerd, is like, ah, oh, no thank you. Hey, why, why do you take that stuff, man? It's no good for you. And uh, Geiger replied, it quiets the visions. <laughs> 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 Fucking Geiger, man. Oh, my Geiger, God. Geiger, Geiger. 
Geiger, Geiger, Geiger. Yeah, it's he fine. He wears a black neckerchief. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm just going to go ahead and say it now. If you want to learn uh, about the the inner eye of, of Geiger, just check out the film Dark Star, H.R. Geiger's World. It was a 2014 documentary directed by uh, Belinda Solin, and it'll also show you his creepy backyard sculpture world that he created mm-hmm. with, like, this weird, creepy bone train. You will love this. You need to see this. I love Marcus. Geiger. Yeah. yeah. Geiger. Check out, yeah, either way, whatever. You know. It is Geiger, but, like, Geiger sounds even more alien and terrifying, yeah, so we're going to keep, like, mixing it up, and I'm Mr. sorry. Mr. Geiger. Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, definitely Have check I out. Have I ever shown you the bonasium? <laughs> <laughs> check out that documentary. Spoiler alert, it's mostly organs. <laughs> <laughs> check out that documentary. You get an inside look into his world. Uh, the One of the things you have to know about him is he, he doesn't like to talk about his previous works and interviews, so the reason why the documentarian was able to get in with him so well is that he the documentarian knew that and focused more on what his life was at that current moment, which is literally right before he died. He died in 2014. So you get a really good inside eye into just like the day-to-day workings of this of, of old man Geiger. I do you like my necklace? I've made it out of ink sacks. <laughs> <laughs> O'Bannon and Shusett are, uh, oh yeah, so Jodorowsky's Dune, Fails to uh, doesn't happen. Uh, he goes back to L.A. He to crashes live on with yeah, uh, crashes on his couch. He gets his typewriter and desk out of storage because that's the only thing he can like physically carry. And uh, he works with Shusit to uh, to kind of refine and expand on the Star Beast script. Yes, um, famously, one of their big breakthrough all night conversations happened when uh, Shusit. Uh, it was like, what if the alien fucks you? <laughs> and they were like, brilliant. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, apparently Shusit did come up with the uh, alien infesting an astronaut and bur- bursting out of them situation. So that was credited to Shusit. Um, O'Br- O'Bannon is literally quoted as just saying, I didn't steal alien from anybody. I stole it from everybody. He took uh, in- inspirations from, um, well, the, f- the big one is Thing from Another World, which <laughs> would also be the inspiration. Well, actually, would just be the direct uh, adaptation. It, there's a lot of like 1950s sci-fi invader movies that yeah. all have weird names, like "It, the Thing, What Was from Beyond," <laughs> or yep. like that, <laughs> the horror of space Omega Seven. It would later uh, be, of course, John Carpenter's Thing, which is you know, again, if you haven't, you've seen that one, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank God. All right, yeah, good. that one's real good. It's all it's all based off of the uh, novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell, but under the pen name Don A. Stewart. It was first published in Astounding Science Fiction <laughs> in 1938, and uh, yeah, it was kind of the basis for all this stuff, which. It gave them basically the idea for a claustrophobic battle um, against an alien. Now, um, they were desperate to get this script sold. Uh, These are, you know, this is a guy who, like, has only worked on failed movies. And Shusett, who was a avowed film producer that had not produced a single film. Yes. These were two desperate nerds, and uh, they they wanted to get this movie done. And so that they could finance Total Recall. And um, <laughs> three words for you right here, Mr. Executive. Oh, yes. Thank you for the water. Thank you. Jaws in space. I'm going to let myself out. You know what? It was fun. It was great to meet you. I'm glad. Thank you for at least letting me. Do you validate or? Um... Uh, <laughs> so they were having issues with it. And um, uh, 
you know, there, it got bumped around to a few places. There was mild interest, but, you know, nothing was really moving. They were this close to, to closing a deal with uh, Roger Corman. Because mm-hmm. at this point, I think they still saw this as a creature feature. Mm-hmm. They saw this as a kind of a B movie, just kind of like, you know, it'll be good. It'll be cool. We'll do cool special effects. But this isn't high art. This isn't world changing. But the script made its way to a uh, three-person team at Brandywine Productions. Oh, shit. Which, I think it's Brandywine. Yes, it's okay. Brandywine Productions. <laughs> um, which had re- I just yell that every time somebody says Brandywine Productions. I have to yell it. Yeah. Um, which is uh, three producers that are heavily connected to 20th Century Fox, and they were- uh, Gordon G. Money Carroll, <laughs> David Loke Dog Geiler, mm-hmm. and Walter the Ninja- it's a the, T-H-A, Ninja Hill. Now, uh, they loved the script, and but thought that it had some some work. If they thought it lacked kind of a human touch. This is where, like, the big money comes in. And this is where a lot of, like, infighting happens because mm-hmm. uh, O'Bannon and Shusett and the team at Brandywine constantly were revising each other's scripts and constantly yes. arguing about the direction of the film. Um, if you hear it from Bannon's side, they just took, like, changed some of the names... You know, so like the names Ripley and uh, and Lambert and Dallas, that's all them, but that doesn't count as like a real script change. The main one was just the uh, the android. They definitely, like, that's the point that they Bannon yields. That. They added uh, Ash as an android. And O'Bannon ha- hated, thought it was a useless po- plot point um, uh, ne- or needless in the script. But it was, I mean, but that's the thing, though. If he thinks that was pointless, then, like, did he think that, like, the Wayland yutani corporate espionage mm. was, like, useless? Did he actually, like, the, the character traits where these are all, like, the truckers in space yeah. um, uh, uh, character? I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, like, all over the place. No, Marcus, that's cut fine. this out. Um, <laughs> I don't edit this. The, <laughs> the idea of this being a more lived-in working, working man's spaceship. Uh, is complained, claimed by the Brandywine team as their contribution and that, you know, the uh, the script that O'Bannon had was just kind of this this by-the-number sci-fi creature feature that wouldn't wouldn't have any legs. Uh, and they go back and forth on this, and it, I think it ended up in litigation. Even to this day, there was, like, some dispute over who did what, but... Uh, oh, I just wanted to, to really quickly say that um, these producers did have a bit of a background in, in, in working on films. They weren't just like big money producer yeah. guys. Walter Hill um, directed The Warriors and 48 Hours. He's quoted as saying, every film I've done has been a Western. Um, also, David Geiler, he was the other big player in rewriting Alien. He wrote uh, The Money Pit and Fun with Dick and Jane. So those are some movies that he made. Fun with Dick and Jane. Yeah, the the ar- Money Pits, Tom Hanks. Yeah, no, Tom, the Fun with Dick and Jane, the one with uh, the porn. Jim- <laughs> the porn, the race car porn. The one with are the two race cars. Talking, are you guys talking about cars engaging in intercars? <laughs> yes, uh, Geiger, I cannot accept this as Cars 4. It's a Pixar film. I do not. I, it is not Cars 4. I call it interlude number seven, colon, Fuck that tailpipe. Now, does the colon have to actually be an asshole? Yes. God damn it. It is full of me stories. It's just so hard to market this to children. It is just so impossible to market this. But teen boys love it because they don't realize it's just a bunch of buttholes. (laughs) (laughs) 
so anyways, uh, they, they did have a bit of film experience under mm-hmm. their belts. Yeah. And uh, so, and, and honestly, if you ask me, it sounds kind of like um, they fixed the script for the better. Yeah, this is raw conjecture, but I feel like... Uh, O'Bannon was very protective of this work because this was his big shot at redemption. This was kind of a memorandum on him as a creator. And so he fought tooth and nail for as much influence and credit as he could. And I honestly believe because he was such a big dumb nerd in these in these interviews that uh, the added human touch and the added like kind of movie star, you know, relatability, save the cat shit. Literally, Sigourney like, Ripley saves the cat. Saves the cat. Like, it's, it's, that's like screenwriting 101. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I honestly believe that the producers did help forge that kind of heart of the movie. Well, either way, no matter what shape the script was in, it was uh, immediately greenlit by 20th Century Fox as soon as Star Wars came out and was a gigantic box office success. They gave it a small, modest budget of $4.2 million, but that budget was doubled, baby, upon the entry of Ridley Scott into the scene after the 20th Century Fox people saw some storyboards that he created. Now, again... Oh. Mm-hmm. Um, he was... Uh, so, they could not find a director for this. Yes, they and, did. They went through a few different, yeah, directors. Uh, but Ridley Scott was this... Uh, he was new onto the scene. His uh, historical drama, The Duelists, made a splash at uh, at uh, at Cannes. Yes. And so... 1977 film set during the Napoleonic Wars follows two French hussar, which is a type of light cavalry officer, quarreling over a minor incident turns into a feud spanning 15 years. Sounds actually really cool. Um... But uh, he was, you know, he was he was a big fan of heavy metal magazine. He like he still had an eye for science fiction. So he took the prod, you know, he took the job and uh, spent three weeks in London hand storyboarding the entire film and brought it back to uh, the bigwigs to get the budget doubled on the spot once they saw his vision. Yep. And that's crazy because all he'd done before that was just TV series, like TV episodes. Like he did an episode of Mogul called If He Hollers, Let Him Go. Yeah. And an episode of The Informer called Your Secrets Are Safe With Us, Mr. Lambert. (laughs) Commercial directors are a very, it's a mixed bag because they either, you know, because they do have an eye for like communicating a lot with visuals, like very quickly and efficiently. But, uh, you know, if they can back if they don't back that up with substance, it's the difference between Neil Blomkamp and McGee. Mm-hmm. When, turn, when it comes to commercial directors becoming uh, film directors. Well, also, uh, Ridley Scott would actually uh, could be arguably one of the greatest commercial directors of all time. He created the 1984 Apple commercial that was filmed, uh, that was put out in the Super Bowl that, like, essentially put Apple on the map. I mean, it is one of the pivotal. The 1984 Smash the Big Brother screen. Yes. He directed that, and it was literally one of the most, I mean, I'm sure they teach that commercial in advertising class. I mean, it is instrumental so he was one of the best of the best but it really was i mean they were just so impressed by the duelists and it makes me really want to see that yeah. movie i've never seen the duelist of course i've seen a lot of other uh, ripley uh films that would come ripley, out later the character on. ridley the director i know right it's, i'm gonna have such it's, it's, a hard time with this it's like worse than you know a, a bunch of japanese names <laughs> um the blade runner legend thelma and louise gladiator the martian uh, more recently and of course I mean, who can forget Prometheus, 
one of the greatest. <laughs> I actually kind of enjoyed Prometheus. Anyways, though, he 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 would go on to create some of the some of the most legendary films of all time. At this point, though, of course, he was just yeah commercials, BBC stuff because he was a British guy, yeah. uh, born in 1937, Northeast England, to an army family. So yeah. But here's the thing, though, he cared a, like he cared about every single shot that was going to happen in this movie. Mm -hmm. And so even though it was a creature feature, he wanted to make sure that he had the best actors possible. He wanted to make sure that he had the best sets possible. He wanted to make sure he had the best costumes possible. Every single setup, every single lumen of light that hit film was under his direct control, much to the detriment of the performers. Um, uh, Hold on. Well, we'll get to the – let's get to the cast because this is is like – all stars. Well, I wanted to I wanted to jump in there too, real quick, because we're talking about all the rewrites the producers did. Yeah. But uh, it, it was actually uh, Ridley Scott that that got down and dirty with the character backstories and shit. Oh yeah. yeah. The characters were written totally flippantly. They, they O'Bannon totally focused on on the monster, on on the the horror aspects, but actually wrote wrote the characters as quote unquote unisex. They, he didn't even have you know defined sexes in for the them. script. It literally said the characters could be played by either men or women. And he and and it was Ripley that sat down and a made Ridley a a woman. You literally flipped it. <laughs> I love it. God damn it. Ridley did it and Ripley was the thing in it. We're talking about Metroid, right? Yep. Metroid. Okay, cool. I mean, in a way we are. Samus was a woman, right? And nobody knew until the end of the first game. Okay, so anyways, he he um he's also known of course though for creating strong female characters and I th- uh, and it has largely to do with his uh, army background, actually. he uh, He's quoted as saying, uh, my mom uh, brought three boys up. My dad was in the army, and so he was frequently away during the war, uh, war that is World War II, and post-war. We tended to travel following him around, so my mom was the boss. My mom. My mom was the boss. I'm sorry, I'll read you. She laid down the law, and the law was good. We just said, yup, okay. We didn't argue. I think that's where the respect came from, because she was tough. John is dead. John is dead. <laughs> he was, he was not from Liverpool. It's not, that is not how John, Ridley Scott talks. John is dead. John died. Holden, I have to <laughs> congratulate you on your convincing European accent. Well, thank you, Geiger. <laughs> um, okay. Ridley, Ridley, I have come with more drawings. Oh, okay, let me see this. Okay. Mm. It's 17 vaginas, but on the raccoon. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Also, the raccoon is a helicopter. I can <laughs> smell the raccoon. It's so vibrant on the page. I've been eating formaldehyde sandwiches. <laughs> let me, can I play you some of my sit <laughs> they all played sitar, right? And uh, leave a review on iTunes if you love our hilarious <laughs> antics. <laughs> you know, I really like the show, but like, you know, their antics are, you know, they're like whatever. Like, I mean, really, I just like the information. You know, Let us an- know their antics. I could take it or leave it. Yeah. Let us know on the Facebook page what you prefer: antics or information. <laughs> we'll get a good idea. It's always about test subjects. Okay, let's get a Facebook poll up: antics or information and we'll, we'll, we'll tally it up at the end. Um, for the love of God, where even were we? Uh, Ridley. We even? Ridley yes. Scott. So uh, I think that's kind of our uh, my connection, my connector, though, to getting into the cast. Mm. Um, I mean, one of the things, you know, we before we get into the name, start naming names, um, 
and everything uh, was just that they cast largely, before we get into our Yafit chat, uh, <laughs> they cast largely older actors. Mm-hmm. And um, I think, th- and just people who felt like real, again, the space trucker aesthetic mm-hmm. that you mentioned earlier. Uh, Union they, guys. Yeah. They were going for uh, an aesthetic of of people that felt uh, like, Everyday Joes that the audience could connect with that felt like these are just people going through a fucked situation and therefore I can connect with that and now I'm fucked and now there's going to be an alien when I get into the shower next time, mm-hmm. right? Kind of a situation. Um, but uh, I, I haven't been in an air duct since I've seen that movie. <laughs> I'm like, no, th-. they're like, hey, Jake, you want to hang out in this air duct? I'm like, nice try. <laughs> it's like, I know what ah! I- and then he turns into the xenomorph. I've been scared by five cats. <laughs> Every time, I'm like, oh no, it's an alien, and the cat's like, meow, and I was like, a cat again. <laughs> um, so, of course, leading the pack, though, the her big break, Sigourney Weaver in in the iconic role mm-hmm. of of Rip, R- Ripley, mm-hmm. Scott. <laughs> oh no, no, no! You were so close. Uh, Sigourney Weaver, up until that point, was just an off-Broadway actress. She had some heat on her, but she hadn't been in a major picture yet. She was very young at the time. She was the least experienced actress, and um, uh, according to you know cast anecdotes, the the kind of um, the kind of uh, uh, tension between Ripley and the rest of the crew as this like kind of goody two shoes rule follower that just hasn't been in the shit as long followed over with the cast who, like, honest to God, had doubts that Sigourney was actually working on the movie. Hmm. Uh, you know, they were they were critical of her. Uh, Yafit Koto famously would uh, oh, improvise heavily in scenes to try and, like, catch her off her guard and kind of, like, push bit, uh, performances out of her. Uh, she talks about feeling very, like, out of her element throughout the entire production. Yes. Um- but she was also fucking tall as shit and like had that um, you know just that fucking Ripley mix of like behind like face like ready to kick ass but like behind the eye just like freaking out like many, it's such a relatable performance many antics uh, of course going on uh, Harry Dean Stanton would show up dressed like a loaded gun to rehearsals <laughs> to frighten her uh, Veronica Cartwright would just expose her her, her body to, to Sigourney oh, Weaver uh, and, uh, if, and if one of those Hollywood dream moments too Sigourney Weaver actually showed up to audition for the cat and then they said you know what maybe you should try playing the lead role and she was like I'd really much prefer to play the cat <laughs> you know Sigourney then- Weaver talks about how uh, she had an allergic reaction from the cats yes on that set. actually is true okay and we she was terrified what is truth and what is lies yeah. what I just said is lies what Jake is now saying is truth uh, she was honestly scared that it would take more effort to find four identical cats for cat work than just to replace her as actress so she was breaking out in hives and not telling anybody <laughs> under fear that she would get fired um, uh, Veronica Cartwright, uh, Lambert, the other the other woman on the crew, uh, famously smacks uh, uh, Ripley in the face after she initially is reluctant to let them back on the ship after the face hugger. Oh, gets, was that that was an impromptu moment? That was uh, um... Ridley like uh, throughout the entire shooting, uh, Sigourney Weaver would like kind of duck with the with the punch, and uh, Ridley Scott just very slowly just kind of leaned in to, to <laughs> Veronica Cartwright on one take was like. 
nailer, nailer on this one. <laughs> and so the hit on camera is like a real hit. And uh, Sigourney Weaver says that uh, she likes the take, but she was upset that she cried because she feels like Ripley wouldn't have cried when that ah, happened. Very interesting. Um, another Veronica Cartwright story that she tells is uh, during the chestburster scene, there's a shot in the, it's it's like lightning quick, but there's a shot where the chestburster uh, just is exploding blood at the entire crew and it nails her in the face and she legit like, Goes into shock. I yes. love that. Like shot. she falls. Like she. It, you, it's great. You see her begin to fall, but like she is legit. Like she's ha- her body is failing her. Watching that, like as it happens. So they knew. You know, I think it goes around. It's like, oh, they didn't know that that was going to happen in the scene. So actually, upon uh, lo- looking into it, uh, they did know that the chest bursting was going to happen. They just didn't know that. He was also like covered in squibs, yeah, and then blood was just going to go popping off all over the place. And of course, famously though, they did film it unbelievably enough in one take in one shot, which is insane. I what? believe no, I they, there oh, are so did. many effect shots. That's oh, okay. not one take. Uh, I thought they did a one take. Actually, no. Uh, one fact busters right. <laughs> with Jake Young. So the chestburster scene. That was a scene, trick, by the way. I was trying to get to catch Jake Young off. The chestburster scene is iconic. It is, yes. you know, they parried it in Spaceballs. It is everywhere. Hello, my baby. Hello, my money. Hello, my ragtime girl. Which, again, it, that scene is so scary. Check, I had please. To look, <laughs> check, please. That scene is so scary, I had to look away during the parody yeah, scene yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't even it's, look at that. That would be my very first uh, instance with the uh, the Xenomorph, was seeing it in Spaceballs, and I was like five or something. Just horrified. I couldn't yeah. look at it. It was like la- the large Marge of Spaceballs. For the record, feminists, yes, I know it's weird that three adult men are talking about the scariest thing they can possibly conceive of being uh, life emerging from you painfully, a.k.a. the thing you were assured was going to happen to you one day when you were a little girl. I get it. I get it. I get it. The point is, ew. <laughs> yeah, well, it's not like girls have dicks jumping out of their fucking chest. That's what it is. It's Wait. like that thing between your legs is coming out of your chest. So you're the- saying the act of childbirth is not a penis and balls popping out of a woman's <laughs> chest? No. Oh, you went to you went to Catholic school. Yeah, didn't you? my <laughs> nun has some splaining to do. Um, but uh, the scene, the, the shot where uh, the alien kind of punches a little and his shirt gets real bloody is actually a failed attempt for the uh, for the chest burster to go through in one shot. Uh, it was actually, despite all the squibs, despite all the um, all the all the viscera and the air pumps and everything that was happening, uh, for some reason the t-shirt couldn't quite give. They had treated it with acid. They had put razor thin score marks in it. They wanted it to burst through. But that initial punch of the alien where the bloody spot happens but it doesn't quite break through was just a failed attempt to shoot the chest burst. Which is the scariest part of the entire scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's just like, what is that? What is that? (laughs) Right. Right. Uh, Movie theater owners uh, were, were, you know, said that people would leave the theater to vomit uh, when the scene was happening. Anecdotally... Uh, one theater in Texas just physically cut the re- the the reels of film to uh, just to avoid having to clean the bathrooms from screenings of Alien. <laughs> wow, that's amazing! Yeah, and people were so terrified they would actually leave the theater, go home, and watch The Exorcist as a palate cleanser. <laughs> that was how scary. Harry Dean Stanton, fucking character actor extraordinaire, uh, is you know barely says anything in the movie, but he's so fucking rad. Uh, I, I cried when he died. Uh, famously, during his casting process, hold on, let me get my note, uh, Harry Dean Stanton told Ridley Scott, I don't like science fiction or monster pictures. 
To which Ridley Scott replied, I don't either, but I think we can make something out of this one. Yeah. But but in British. <laughs> uh, John Hurt was uh, supposed to be in the movie. But the Hurt Locker. That's, <laughs> that's his nickname. Oh, God. He was... John Hurt's amazing, R.I.P. He was so good in uh, in uh, Snowpiercer. Mm, um, mm-hmm. John Hurt was uh, was supposed to be in the movie, then he couldn't make it, and they cast someone else. That person on the first day of shooting, an actor whose last name was Finch, I forgot his first name, uh, uh, was flubbing his lines and like falling apart at the seams, and it turns out uh, he was having a diabetic episode uh. and was, had undiagnosed diabetes, so he had to leave the set, and John Hurt had finally was free of his previous commitment to join the cast. Hmm. Um, the uh, alien itself was mostly acted by... Uh, Oh, I can't pronounce this poor African guy's name. Or, I'm sorry, African. No, he was an, he was African. Okay, uh, he was actually from Africa. He was an immigrant. Okay, hell yeah, straight up. That had no real clue what was actually going he was, on. He here. was a design student, <laughs> and someone just casually, like a casting agent, just saw him in the wild and was like, "Hey, you look freaky." <laughs> he was yeah. nearly seven feet tall. His uh, famously, his hands reached below his knees. He was very thin. And so they, uh, a lot of, a lot of monsters, like, if there's still a rubber suit in a movie, inside there is a desperately sweating, thin person underneath all of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I will attempt to say his name, Balaji Badejo, something oh. like that. Sure. Something like that. And he took mime and tai chi classes to uh, get some of the movement down for the xenomorph, which is kind of cool. Um, Tom Skerritt famously, uh, lobbied on his behalf when it was discovered that he could not sit down in the costume <laughs> due to the uh, the latex and the tail. And so he had the, uh, the, the crew rig a rudimentary swing for him to lean against. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually... Uh, the actor's well-being was kind of uh, uh, famously there was the uh, the shot of the alien spacecraft in the spacesuits with that cool Mobius uh, design. Um, for scale, Ridley Scott got his own children uh, to wear smaller versions of the spacesuits so that the scale of the wide shots was even more impressive. Yes, he was unsatisfied with how large the ship was. Mm-hmm. So in order to fix that, he got the kids in there. And they also almost passed out in the spacesuits. Uh, the spacesuits <laughs> with the helmets and the heavy padding and the uh, armor pieces and uh, with several like large chunks of just brass metal all over it uh, had no ventilation. And so Tom Skerritt, uh, <laughs> Veronica Cartwright... And John Hurt were all passing out from CO2 inhalation. Yes, so they had to have oxygen tanks on hand. It sounded like it was a pretty brutal filming, much like you would think of a low-budget sort of picture being. But, again, uh, the other th- besides the chestburster scene, uh, the, 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 the space jockey is this immense work of practical set building. Yes, they this had is- to convince... 20th Century Fox to allow them to create this thing because it was such a big piece for such a small amount of screen time. But they, they, their argument was, if we do this, it'll convince the audience this isn't just some tiny little B picture, which was really their fear from the get-go. That's why they passed around to so many different, uh, looked around for uh, the right director for so long as they were so afraid it was going to become some kind of crappy, crummy B, B pick. Uh, the space jockey itself was uh, hand-sculpted by H.R. Uh, Giger. Yes. Um, cast in, I mean, sculpted in clay, cast in plaster, and then the entire set was airbrushed by hand by H.R. Giger. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, 
you know, this is a million, multi-million, in today's dollar, that is a multi-million dollar set just for just this quiet, like, terrifying couple of minutes of footage. And it goes such a long way. It tells such a terrifying story. Just this one image sticks in people's heads of the, of the, of the space dragon. If you don't know what we're referring to, all I can say is just Google it, look it up, look at, look at a pic of what we're talking about. I mean, it is just such— It was such, built by hand. It, it is just—just all- just like all of Geiger's designs for this film and, and, and in general, it just feels so— so exotic, so foreign, and yet so real. Like, it really exists in this terrifying nightmare world, you know? Uh, that was an important part of the movie as well, was that Giger was in charge of all of the alien designs, all of the, uh, all the you know, all the xenomorph space jockeys, uh, uh, you know, effects. But the interior of the Nostromo and the human stuff was f- from a completely different design team. They were literally yes. uh, coming from two different perspectives, two completely alien <laughs> minds. Uh, also, yes, this uh, is Ron, Ron Cobb, mm-hmm. uh, who is known for Star Wars, Conan, Total Recall, True Lies. Um, Are you talking about Total Recall? Total Recall. Um, uh, and actually, he's credited as coming up with the uh, creature having acid for blood, which I think is my favorite element of the movie. Perfect what, defense system. What is more terrifying than being in space with uh, fighting a creature who can, bur- you know, if you hurt it, it'll burn through the walls and kill you. It's an incredible device. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. It's real It's real good. Um, here's the thing. Uh, peop- all the things that make the aliens scary are all things that are, like, still in nature. That's why it, like, made sense to the viewers. Like, there are parasitic insects that, like, burrow inside other creatures. There's, you could, a bot fly could land on your face tomorrow and a fucking maggot will just burrow into you and burst out, like, given a few weeks of feeding on your flesh. Happens to me all the time. (laughs) Um, Moray eels uh, actually have an inner jaw like a xenomorph. Um... Hagfish make their own KY jelly. I mean, it's all. Oh, anecdote from the anecdote from the from the set. Uh, the uh, the the production used a lot of KY jelly to yes. make everything wet and organic Tons and slimy. Of KY, and apparently there was a flamboyant homosexual in the uh, in the set dressing where, department. Wait, where is this going? What is this? They called him. I. They called him mother on the set. Okay, and whenever it was time to apply KY jelly. He would uh, come up with a bucket and say, I got this. Alright, <laughs> <laughs> no, wait a second. Hold on. They called him mother. That's a lot. That is, I think that's, hold on. That's fake, right? I watched four hours of behind the scenes documentary, and both Tom Skerritt and Vanessa Cartwright wanted to tell the story about mother, the flamboyant homosexual who loved KY jelly and his magical jelly bucket. Well, now this is. Um, this is, I think, the best, maybe the best time to bring this up. No, maybe it's not. I don't know when the best time is. I've wanted it's to bring it up. It's super weird that there's a lot of porn when, like, Ash is attacking Sigourney Weaver. Mm-hmm. That's, like, weird because he's a robot and it's not supposed to be sexual. Yep. But then there's all that porn behind her and, like, all of a sudden it gets really weird and sexual. So that's what I was getting to. I think why this was so terrifying for us as children to people in general is when you, like— freaky up sex when you when you when you put sex in in a horror light it is like kind of can be more scary and disturbing than you know almost anything else you know and and the phallic design of the alien and everything you know i mean obviously geiger was in very much about like horror the horror sex kind of thing Mm -hmm. weird sort of penises and vaginas and creepy the original sketch that inspired the alien design the painting 
Necronomicon 4 or whatever. Necronom 4, yes. Necronom 4. The head of the xenomorph is literally a penis. Yes. It is literally a black dick. Um, There's actually footage of Giger showing off the original painting. It's like, we made some adjustments. Uh, you know, the 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 hind horns are, are more tubular, and the hands and the ribs on the sides are different. And then he waves at the dickhead. It's like, and other things. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's it's um, especially when you're a, a, a little kid and you don't really have your everything kind of wrapped up in terms of how you feel about sex and everything. When you it's barely shown, understand that you have a human body. Yeah, when it when it's shown in a dark and terrifying light like this, in a, in a subtle light, it can just be very upsetting. And and this was all intentional. O'Bannon once said, "One thing that people are all disturbed about is sex." I said, "That's how I'm going to attack." the audience. I'm going to attack them sexually, and I'm not going to go after the women in the audience. I'm going to attack the men. I'm going to put in every image I can think of uh, to, uh, to make the men in the audience cross their legs. Homosexual, oral rape, birth, the thing lays its eggs down your throat, the whole number. <laughs> the whole, the whole number. number. Uh, yeah, it's just it's just every bit in it, and, and Ah, I don't, you know, it's like, it's not like direct. (laughs) (laughs) While those boys contemplate their loss of sexual agency, they'll think to themselves, well, this isn't the cat's pajamas. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the whole, the whole thing, you know, and and to have it not just be like uh, depicting like a a rape in a horror movie, Mm. you know, having it be this weird sort of symbolic kind of the the alien just has like a very phallic look to it you know well, and it taps into subconsciousness yes, you know it like just, that it's not so overt that you can kind of so if something's overt you can kind of sweep it away you can say like oh okay yeah that's never going to happen to me but if something attacks you on a subconscious level you can't sweep it away because you don't know it's being attacked so mm. this all plays into everything they were doing right because mm-hmm. uh, i mean i think we we can all agree after be having seen so much horror in our lives the 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 monster is scariest when you can't quite fully see it, yeah. right? And Alien plays on that to a T. You're constantly trying to figure out what this thing even looks like all through the film. It never really fully gives you, like, the full... It's con- And it's constantly changing and moving and and, and, and doing... Metamorphosizing. Things, metamorphosizing in ways you're never able to get a handle on exactly what it looks like. And I feel like they do that as well with the... De- de- depiction of sexuality throughout as as a just a sort of symbolic offering so you're never able to get your get your uh hands fully around it uh and caress it and um yeah uh so yeah it's it's intensely it's intensely effective you know yeah kind of like uh jessica rabbit yeah (laughs) it's a lot like jessica rabbit just very subconscious character (laughs) jessica rabbit got in a weird fight with my girlfriend on stream the other night about um finding cartoon women attractive what's wrong with that (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing wrong with being like that's a sexy drawing it's when you're like man women would be a lot better if they just were creations of men meant solely for my pleasure. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> Look at those Chun Li hips. Why don't you have those? It was a lot. Well, I think it's also how much anime girls like are uh, like less of a problem with Jessica Rabbit, more of a problem with like getting into like being into anime girls because they look so young and child. Oh, child we now. will never stop talking about this if we actually. No, we can't. Exactly. We but already then, did Miku. <laughs> yeah, we did Miku, and uh, and people loved it. Let me say. <laughs> But anyways, uh, yeah, so I just, uh, you know, I think that it just has such a huge 
part to play uh, in, in, in all of this and why this movie is so powerful and continues to be so powerful. Um, we, I'm, I also, like, we paid a lot of homage to the designs and the effects and the uh, creature, but I, just the sets and Ridley Scott's pacing and eye for uh, detail and compositions can't be undersold. The movie, you know, John Hurt doesn't have a, have a, have a dick baby until that literal halfway point of the movie. And up until then, it's just this very lived in familiar mm-hmm. science fiction world. Um, there's, there's, uh, you know, yeah, there's kind of light, there's some lightheartedness, there's some hanging out. You kind of need that feel. Smo- something about having a cigarette in a spaceship is automatically cool. We covered this in the Cowboy Bebop episode. Yes. And, uh, and, and, and they do this Jaws in space kind of thing to go back to that phrase. Yeah. You know, I was rewatching the chest popping scene earlier, uh, today. I had, you know, had to, right? And, uh, right before they, that happens, they're having this incredibly casual, very real feeling, mm-hmm. just dinner scene where they're all sitting around hey, the table. Kane's back! And it re- hey, you scared us, you old son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, everything's gonna be okay. And it reminds me of uh, you know, that the scene in Jaws where they're all hanging out on the boat. It's mm-hmm. like right before the shit goes down, they just make you feel as co- as casual and comfortable as humanly possible so that it's that much scarier and so that it'll invade your real life and, y- and you won't be able to l- get away from it because the moment you feel safest, you're gonna feel like you're gonna get sabotaged. And they're also all working class people as well. I mean, yes. they're just total working class because everyone, well, at least at that time when they were still manufacturing jobs, but everybody could, uh, back then, really, uh, they could identify with someone going, ah, God damn it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, ah, I got to deal with this bullshit now. And again, to compliment the design on that, you know, they were, of course, taking a note from uh, Star Wars and going against that whole aesthetic of like, oh, everything's pristine in the future. No, they were going the against 2001. World. Yeah, Star 2001. Wars, Star Wars no, was a little different. They're taking a note from Star oh, yeah, Wars yeah. is what I was saying. Like, the and, and going against 2001 and all that kind of stuff, saying, no, everything doesn't look perfect in Bersina. It looks like just a normal, but we're in space now in ships. A lot of the Nostromo was created from uh, scrapped uh, World War II-era bombers and uh, used military equipment. They actually kind of went out into a, uh, an a airplane graveyard, uh, bought a bunch of scraps, sold off all the valuable metals. Um, one thing that freaked me out was uh, the computers are this very, like, 80s, low-res, loud, clicky kind of computer that I realized I'm so fucking old. Computers aren't loud anymore. Mm. It's all solid state. Like, I remember floppy disks, and floppy disks were loud as fuck to do everything. (laughs) 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 And uh, Nostromo's computers are very loud, very clicky-clacky, and it's oppressive. The noise in there is oppressive whenever they have to do anything. And you were talking about the pacing and everything. I just wanted to also give a shout-out to uh, Terry Rawlings. Raw dog, you know what I'm saying, (laughs) brother? You've been giving too many shout-outs to old Hollywood guys who are dead. (laughs) (laughs) He was the editor. He also edited the duelist so uh really just brought him along uh to this movie and he is quoted as saying i think the way we did get it right was by keeping it slow funny enough which is completely different from what they do today and i think the slowness of it made the moments that you want people to be sort of scared then we could go as fast as we liked because you sucked the people into a corner and then attacked them so to speak and i think that's how it worked and then he exploded and died. <laughs> that was the last thing he ever said. Hollywood Reporter interview. <laughs> so the legacy of Alien mm. uh, reaches out just to 
everything from video games to like it just changed how we see space it changed how we see horror it gave us alien versus predator which was mediocre at best it gave us alien versus predator requiem which was literally the cinematic equivalent of just having a guitar smashed against your ball sacks it didn't give us freddy versus jason that was a completely separate Good on you, alien. crossover yeah so i gotta was- tell this real fast before we leave i went and, uh, me and carolina went and saw the what is it the 30th anniversary of uh, aliens uh it was uh, in manhattan it was fucking amazing in this old theater and uh sigourney weaver actually came Whoa. and did a question and answer session so- a- afterwards Man, nobody can say fuck like that woman. Like, she yeah. just throws out an F-bomb every three words, and it sounds so classy. Oh, so God, like there was son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> like, there was this one guy that was just a total fucking, I mean, just had no idea what he was saying. He was like, um, if Alien uh. and Predator was, like, another movie, would you l- like it? <laughs> and she just goes... I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> it's just like, oh, man. Oh, <laughs> but still nice about it. Yeah. Uh, James Cameron famously pitched uh, his sequel just by writing the words alien on a chalkboard, pausing a second, and adding the letter S. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately got it greenlit. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, oh, last uh, last note I have in my things Jake really wants to scream on the podcast this week. Uh, fucking doubt da- when, at the end of the... Dallas in the cocoon going, kill me. That's where fucking kill me is from. <laughs> kill me is everywhere. That's such a fucking Everyone trope. Says it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not in real, in, in, in media. Me. No, no, yeah, exactly. It's yeah. such a go to punchline. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that it's not like, it's not this amorphous cliche. It's literally a reference to this one moment in a fucking legendary movie. And that blew my mind. I mean, I would just like to make a recommendation if you're a gamer. You probably already know this, but check out Alien Isolation. It's a fantastic recreation. No, it's so spooky. <laughs> it's a fantastic recreation of, of sort of what they were going for in the first film. It stays pretty true to that. As um, a true gamer, I got to recommend Alien Colonial Marines <laughs> <laughs> because it's as oppressive as working on this drama. Yeah, but you know, you really got to get a good grind. Graphics card on that one. You got to be a real like PC like true gamer if you really want to get an alien cool in the green. What's cool about Alien Isolation too is they they really try to make uh, the the space look like the actual ship from Ridley Scott's Alien, which is uh, the design of that game is fantastic, and of course it puts you in a situation where it's just you versus the alien, which is like nowhere else did that. No other game has done that or anything, so it's it's good. I'm satisfied, man. Yeah, I really, I, love, yeah. I, I had a lot of fun this, this week. This is a good one, man. What you make it sound like we don't have fun every week, Jake? <laughs> we have fun every week, Jake. Now oh, that's it. Next week we're doing something. I don't even know what we're doing. We're doing like, oh, I know, snorks. <laughs> it's happening. Snork episode. Now my time to shine. <laughs> I would like to take this opportunity to announce my resignation from the Wizard and the Bruiser family to spend more time with my family. It's just gonna be called the Wizard, or maybe the Bruiser. I don't know which one. Um, snork dog with all the Snork dog. Snorkers. So, anyways, uh, thank you so much. Please uh, uh, rate and review us on iTunes, and uh, you can also uh, please uh, catch me on Twitch. 
at Holdenator's Ho. That is my channel. You can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young, and I do stuff for uh, Dorkly.com as well as the yeah. Drawfee channel on YouTube. Uh, check out our two-parter on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure if you are uh, willing to laugh at the best worst thing in all of Japanese media. Dude, that's awesome. And please go check out all of the uh, alien deviant art pages if you want to see a bunch of aliens with some sweet butts. Mm -hmm. Because that's all it is. <laughs> How just... dare you corrupt my designs with tasty <laughs> buttocks. <laughs> well, it's easy, you see. You just take a magic rainbow over to the diamond sky. Oh, oh, Lucy's Ridley. up there. Ridley, I had the visions again. <laughs> Ridley. Oh, well, oh, it's a Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hops Club band in the, in the movie now. Oh, God. Okay, we should be done. Thank you. Farewell. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. <laughs>